Gospel of John, chapter 1, written by John the Revelator. Always kind of like that uh, title to him. He's the one that Revelation was revealed to him. He's an ex-fisherman, you know, turned a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's the disciple that lived the longest. I always try to remind myself about that. This is one who's seen it all, the one the Lord entrusted to teach and instruct us. And this is what he's left for you and I, to come to faith or to believe and strengthen our faith. In chapter 1 so far, he's told us that Jesus is the Word. And he is. He's the Word made flesh. That he's the Creator. We don't always think of that in that way, but between that and we looked at Colossians 2, that he's the one who does these things. That Jesus Christ, uh, the Word, is deity. That he's Messiah. And that Jesus is the light in this world of darkness. And so he is different. He is contrary. He is not like this world. And that's a good always good reminder for us as well that uh, if we're going to be like him you're going to be different too you're not going to fit in with everyone else the things you say and the way you behave is not going to be like your co-workers or those around you unless they're christian you're going to be a little different you're going to stand out and that's part of christianity getting used to being different when you mean it to that's like you know the line that they use in the chosen it, it is you're going to be different you're going to live differently you're going to act differently you're going to behave differently i mean to give up you know, one morning on a weekend, you know, to come to church, you know, to give up Wednesday night to come and study, you know, to read your Bible, to pray, give money that you work hard for that you would donate it and use it for the cause of the gospel. You know, that, that's different. Most people are striving, trying to keep it and wanting it to grow. We see it differently. We see things differently. And yeah, it's like light in a dark world. We're to be that way as well. And I think the more we act like him and the more we behave like him, the more that that light shines and the more the darkness might perceive it and then have questions for us. And so it helps our testimony. He's already told us that if you have received him as your savior, that he makes you a son of God or a daughter of God, that you become adopted into God's family. And that's, you know, that's no small title to be a son of God. That's a special creation of God. The angels were called sons of God. And so we are special creations of God. That's what being born again is, that we are created. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we've done. When we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as savior, he makes us a new creation or a new creature. And so we get adopted into God's family and we become a son or daughter of God. And that's a neat title to think about. John tells us about that. This book was written so that you believe in him. And if you don't, say if you don't believe that you'll become a believer. And to strengthen your faith if you do believe. That you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior, that he is deity, that you have confidence in who he is, what his message was, and what our message is to be. And so this is good instruction for soldiers, you know, to know who we are, what we stand for, what we are doing if we're going to go out and fight in this lost and dying world. And those battle lines are being drawn more and more clearly each and every week. John has also introduced us to John the Baptist, an interesting character. He's uh, one that he'll come back later in John, but John the Baptist is he's being introduced because he's been Drawing crowd, we've seen that. You know, he's kind of told it in a jumbled way, you know, maybe not necessarily a chronological way. He's kind of given us his message, and he kind of tells us about an encounter, and, and then he'll tell us about, about the end of his ministry, and then he'll refer back to the baptism of Jesus. And so not necessarily chronological in how it's told, but he's getting the main points in. The religious leaders went or sent men out to investigate him. We were talking about that last week to say, who is this guy? Who's the guy who's preaching in the wilderness that people are walking 20, 30 miles to go see? You know, what's his message? Who does he think he is? And so they ask him that. They go, are you Christ? Are you Messiah? And he's like, no. Are you Elijah, the forerunner, the one who's supposed to come in beforehand? He's like, no. Are you that prophet, the one that Moses talked about, which is actually Messiah again? He's like, no, I'm not. And they're like, well, then who are you? And that's where we are in verse 23. And he said, I am the voice 
of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. He said, I'm the voice. That's where we ended last week. Reminding us that we're his voice. We're to be the ones proclaiming in the wilderness in this lost and dying world. We're to be a voice that stands up and says, there's hope. Your sins can be forgiven. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you can have salvation. That there, the world, there is good news in this world. That it's not all bad. It's not all going down dark. It's not all, we're all dying of the pandemic and there's no way out. You know, the economy, everything's crashing. No, we have hope. Our hope's not in a politician. Our hope's not in a government. Our hope's in a savior. The one who'll come and make all things new again. And so, yeah, we're, we're to be out crying the same as John the Baptist. And we might appear the same to our people as John did to them. I don't know if I'd recommend putting on uh, some animal hair and eating locusts out on the street, but it would draw a crowd. Uh, but I, I think some people have tried that. But uh, I think that um, we're nearly seen as weird enough. I think, um, you know, I've shared my testimony before when I was, uh, got saved at 13. You know, I was into superheroes and uh, still am. But I went in, in my room and, and I was secretly doing this where I was making me a little mask that I put on, and I made it out of a T-shirt, you know, because I'd seen where Peter Parker had done that. And, and I was going to stretch this over my face. I thought I was going to get in trouble for cutting up my T-shirt, and I probably would have been. But I, but I sewed it and everything, you know, so I, I was like, just like the comic books, and I was going to be the scarecrow was the name I came up with, and I'd drawn these eyebrows on, and I was going to go and witness door to door. And my mom's like, people are going to think you're weird. <laughs> and so, and uh, she was right. People think I'm weird. But uh, I ended up turning it into a Spider-Man mask. But I still went out and passed... A gospel tracks. So we used to hit the big place in Franklin was Northwood Plaza because that's where Kroger was and Ames, you know, the big big chain Ames and, and whatever else was all through there. And I'd go and put them on the car you know, tracks on windshield wipers and pass them out that way. And I still coat that area pretty good with tracks. And so, but, it's, but I wanted people to know my sins had been forgiven. And that's not normal behavior for a 13-year-old boy. Good. I'm in good company. I'm with John the Baptist. And, you know, you want to stand out in the crowd. And so you're going to do things. You're going to speak up. You're going to stand up. They're going to see you as different. And so he was seen as different. We want to be that voice that's crying out in the wilderness. I was talking with somebody this week and, and just saying how frustrating it is that people are blind. That they don't see where we are in the world. They don't see the things that are coming. You know, they're, they're not listening and seeing these as omens, as signs that the Bible has told us to look for to show that the end is drawing near. You know, they, they'll give you the excuse of it's been the same. My grandpa talked about the same. What about when they had polio? And, and they have all these excuses. And it's just like, oh, you can't shake them to wake them. You know, you can't you can shine the light of the gospel in their eyes and they just don't see it. And I was just saying, boy, I just, I wish people would wake up to see that the return of Christ is very near and it's just frustrating. And the person reminded me, they said, well, you ever think about Noah? And I'm like, well, sometimes, but not recently, but thank you. <laughs> Noah, you know, 150 years preaching. Eight souls. Eight souls. Mocked and made fun of. Probably told he was wasting resources and time and effort and energy. Eight souls listened. Only eight other souls prepared. Only eight other people believed. And that was his family. <laughs> you know, so you're kind of, well, you'd expect them to, right? You know, then it Good that they did, and they helped. Only eight souls got on the ark before a drop of rain ever fell. That's faith right there, right? That's believing. You know, we got to get on here, and it's like, it's never rained before. And like, what are you doing? Eight days of them coming by, what are you waiting for? Oh, I'm drowning. Until the last day. So we're to be watchmen. That's so what I was reminded. 
And the watch, if you see danger coming, if you see these things, you're to say something about it. God has equipped you. He's made you have eyes to see. He's made you sensitive uh, to these things. And so speak up. And the watchman was one who would stand on the wall, and if he saw danger coming, he had to sound the alarm. That was his job. Whether people responded to that alarm or not, that was their responsibility. God says, I hold the watchman responsible to sound the alarm. In my 20s, I was going to start a newsletter and call it The Watchman, and I wrote a couple, but I don't know that I ever published any, but then he made me a preacher. But I wanted to sound the alarm. I see things that are coming. We've got to let people know. And God says, once you've done that, your responsibility's done. It's whether people respond is on them. But if not, if you, if you see it coming and you don't sound the alarm, then their blood's on your hand. And so I've always taken that to heart. It's always moved me to say something when others might be quiet. And my wife say, Brian, they're going to think you're nuts. <laughs> but I'm like, I've I got to say something. If I see it and I believe that, I've got to say it. And so I'll sound the alarm. I'm going to ring the bell, do what I'm called to do, and I'm not going to be discouraged by it. Try not to be. John the Baptist was that way. It's a good company to be in. Ones that are out there sounding the alarm and, and people question you. John the Baptist had no one backing him up. Well, what school did you go to? Who else is with you on this? Who's on board with you? And he's like, me. <laughs> I'm out here you know, preaching this message. You know, it's, uh, No priests are behind him. None of the Levites and the Levitical you know, families, that whole class, none of them. None of the Pharisees were with him on this. None of the Sadducees were with him on this. None of the religious rulers of that day. So you can see where it would be threatening to them that somebody's starting up something new, something they can't control. Somebody that's outside and somebody different, and then how do we trust them? What's it going to be? We'd be the same way today. If someone's out saying something, I would go test and examine and see what they were saying. I mean, that's what we do. He was the lone voice. And he's this lone voice that's crying in the wilderness, he says. Let's go look at the verse that he's quoting. I'm always comforted that uh, John spells Isaiah like I might. <laughs> but uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. This is the verse he's quoting, and I would encourage you, if you want something to read this week, read that whole chapter. But Isaiah 40, verse 3, is the passage that he's quoting. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. This voice that's in the desert crying is saying, let's make this easy. Let's make this a smooth transition. Let's take the crooked place and make it straight. Make it easy for people to come. Let's take the high place hills and let's make them down low where it's flat. There's no mountain to go over. Those rough places that would be hard terrain to cross and get across, let's make those smooth. Let's fill it in and make it easy so when the Messiah comes, we just makes it natural and an easy place to be. And that's, that's what our job is, to try to make it natural. Our job as a pastor, your job as, as Christians, to let people know so when they see these things and they begin to click, like, wait a minute, these are things that you've been saying, that it makes it easy for them to say, well, what else did you say? I think that's important. Even we don't see any converts right here and now. If the rapture happens, that they'll be like, well, wait a minute, they were talking about this. Let's go to their house and let's do this and let's, do, let's see what they have. Maybe they left us some clues. And I've been encouraged by a few of you saying, well, I've been leaving my Bible out each and every night. Or when I leave for work that day, you know, open to passages just in case you know, somebody comes in, there it is, front and center. That's good. 
you know, or having something marked up in my desk drawer to the top right, you know, where somebody's going to look through my stuff, you know, where'd Brian keep the candy bars? You know, they'll find that in there too, you know, to be able to read and point. And he was talking about this. I want it to be enough that they're like, hey, wait a minute. You know, the rapture happens. He was talking about this. What else did he say? How did, how did he know and where is it going that they would then be able to point and to turn to that, to come to our church and find those things as well. And so we try to make it smooth, try to make it easy. We're hoping that they come now. You know, before and not wait till after because, man, that's going to be hard road to hoe. I also see this, and that makes me think of being a parent as well. That that's kind of our job raising our children is to teach and instruct them so it's not a hard leap for them. That's not a big grasp for them to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. That we've modeled it in front of them, that it's made those crooked paths straight, that we've taken those hills and we've worn them down so it's smooth, so the rough places are made smooth as well. I guess Elaine and I saw our family as our mission field, that's for sure. And we wanted to teach them, instruct them, so that the point in time when they realized that they were sinners, they'd know right where to go. That it wouldn't be, what am I going to do? Oh no, I'm a sinner. That they would know that they could go right to Jesus Christ and ask Him to save them. And we're glad that they did. And so I'd encourage you to do that as well. Let's make that there. And so it's, that's your first priority, your family, and then, then we go outside of that. But here he's saying he wants to do this. And this is who John the Baptist is saying I am. He goes, oh, you, you know I'm a biblical character, right? Uh, you're suspecting that I'm Isaiah. You're suspecting that I'm that prophet. You even thought maybe I was Messiah. And he goes, I'm not. I'll tell you who I am. I'm the one Isaiah talked about. Go read about him. And I said, I would encourage you to go read this whole chapter. It's going to remind you of Christmas. There's a lot of handle uh, used a lot of this passage in there. And so the investigators, if we turn back to John, so the investigators thought he was something, like I said, biblical. He says, I am. I'm the voice. I'm the one that Isaiah talked about. But he's alone. He's crying out God's message. That's a good example for us. Do you have God's message? Do you have a story that you could tell? Do you have your testimony at least? Speak it. Pass it out if you have God's message. Uh, we have various forms that are written down, track forms that you can pass out. You can invite others. Because the hour is getting late. It's time for us to move and see the opportunity. I will encourage you, and I don't think I have any out on the table right now, but I know I have some at home that I need to, need to bring in that I hadn't mailed in. More of the million-dollar bills with the Ben Franklin with the mask on it. The million-dollar bills is one of the easiest tracks to pass out. And I think this one with the mask on it is the easiest of any of them. I, I mean, I've had... People standing in the line waiting like, oh, I didn't get one, you know, and making sure that I'm passing them out. When else do you have people like standing in line, oh, you missed me, give me one, to be able to pass it out in that way. It's usually, you know, I usually say, oh, look, it's COVID-approved money or something like that. Or, hey, you know, we even put masks on our money and I leave it with them. They're kind of confused for a minute because it looks like money. And then, and then they're like, that's funny. You know, are you going to keep this? Yes, I want you to have it. Make sure you read it on your break, you know, and put it in this way. So it's easy to pass out in that way. And uh, I'm the best employee at Walmart, so I do the U-scan real quick. And so I think I'm going to get a bonus this year. And so I was doing all that, scanning all out, but I had something I had to have. I think I bought a, a sound thing that I had to have them take the little security strap off of. And so then I had to uh, you know, have the lady come over and do it and type in the code or whatever. Maybe I bought WD-40 and make sure I was over 18. You know, so they had to do all that. But, oh, I forgot to give you one of these. Thanks for helping me. Here's your million-dollar bill. You know, and she was laughing, and, and there was people at the bank were standing out there looking for something to do. And, and they saw that she had it, and I saw them kind of laughing at it because she was like, oh, that's funny. And I went, oh, oh, you guys want one too? Yeah. And then the other guy in the back, I didn't get one, come running up. I'm like, boy, when do you get a chance to pass out the gospel like that? And everybody wanting their, wanting their gospel track that way. And so that's one I'll, I'll have back on the table here uh, starting on Wednesday. 
I encourage you to get those and pass them out. His crowd, as he passes out his gospel message, as he's saying this, as he's telling them I'm the voice, they're not so much convinced yet, especially these investigators. The crowd is, and that's what bothers them. They're wanting to see what right, by what power. So verse 24. It's John chapter 1, verse 24. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Pharisees are all show, not much action. You know, they're the ones who are going to put on the front that they are so religious and so pious and inside they're crooked, they're corrupt. So it's the Pharisees, verse 25. And they asked him, and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou not be the Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is whose coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. There's a lot of cultural things that we miss in here. Because we think of baptism, we think of believer's baptism. Because that's what we know, right? Where if someone comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, then maybe a few weeks later, like, you know, I'm feeling like I need to be baptized. I want to be identified to the church. I want to follow in obedience. You know, we have two ordinances, communion, uh, that we take here every week. And the next is baptism, where you follow in baptism to be identified with Christ. And so, it's the first sermon you preach. It's an outward sign of the inward change. You've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You've repented of your sins. You've trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're now a new creature. He's given you a new heart. He's given you new desires. He's changed your mind. You know, he's made you new. It's a new beginning. Born again is the phrase that we use. It's that kind of a radical change. And you're like, I want people to know. I want to identify with him. I want to be obedient to what he's asked me to do. I want to be baptized. I want to be marked with him. So usually come talk to me, and then I'll send you some verses, and we talk back and forth to make sure we understand everything. But it's the first public sermon that you preach. You're saying, I was alive and in my sins. But now I know that I'm a sinner. I need this Savior. So I repented of those sins, and I trusted in Jesus Christ to be my Savior. You're proclaiming that publicly. Some people give their testimony, uh, depending on how comfortable you are. Some people, I just ask the question, have you done this? And you answer yes or no. I mean, because it is a big step to come and stand in front of people. They say people fear public speaking more than they fear d- death, you know, in most polls you know, that is there. You know, so uh, it already tells you I got a screw loose, you know, <laughs> I'm up here. But um, you know, people fear that. So you, and it is a bold thing. You know, sometimes you're younger. It's all different. This is a big moment. And so, but we make sure the gospel gets proclaimed to the one who's standing up. And then we put on the play, and we do the show, and we have the identification, where we bury you publicly underwater. Death, because if I hold you down there too long, you will die. I mean, it's death. You're underwater. You cannot live there. And so we bury you. It's, it's symbolic of being buried, that you're identifying with the Savior as well. He was placed in the grave. And then three days later, he rose out of the ground. And you're saying, I'm identifying with him. I want to be placed in the grave, and then I will resurrect. And so the old me was dead. I'm burying him, and, and now I'm a new person coming out. And so there's a lot of symbology that's going on with believer's baptism. And so you're buried, and then you rise again. New life, fresh start. 
You know, usually the congregation claps and cheers. It's exciting to see one take their faith boldly and publicly proclaim it. See someone who has gone from off the fence to saying, I want people to know that I am Jesus Christ and that he has saved me, that I'm identified with the Savior. It is encouraging. It encourages the saints. Every time you hear of a baptism, every time you see a baptism, it encourages all of us. You've identified with Jesus who was buried and rose again. And you're saying that's who... That's who I'm identified with. And this is what has happened to me. I was once was dead, but now I'm alive. And I'll be raised in newness of life until he changes me, he glorifies me, and brings me into his presence. It's also letting the spirit realm know that you just stepped up your game. That you're part of the Lord's army now. In the Old Testament, and especially the early church, it was even more so. They would make a decree about to the spiritual forces that they are now their enemy and that they are going to do everything in their might to fight against them. We do it more subtly that we're making this proclamation. We are letting them know there's no longer, uh, because the spirit realm can't read your minds. They can maybe plant thoughts and, and put things across your path, but they, they don't know what you're thinking. The Lord can. That's why we can pray with our eyes closed and heads bowed and, and be able to communicate with the Lord. They, they can't interrupt that. Uh, but if you speak it out loud and if you let people know it, there might people be believers but who never say it publicly. What threat is that? No one knows who they are. No one knows what they're doing. But you come forward in front of a congregation and stand up and say, I want to be identified with you who are also identified with my Savior. And I'm telling you that I'm part of the Lord's army now and I'm standing up in front of them. And I want the spirit world to know that, oh, I'm not lost and drowned in a flood like the first wretches were when God judged the world. I was raised to new life in Him and I'm standing up to fight on His side. And so you're letting the spiritual forces know I'm part of the Lord's army. I'm one of the obedient ones. I'm the one doing as my Lord commands, and I want to be identified with him. And so it's showing that you're dangerous. You're a Christian who's going to do what the Lord says. Don't we all wish we were doing more what the Lord says and be that kind of obedience way? Oh, I would sing it all, but I don't know all the spelling. Uh, but we want to be obedient. You know, it's the very best way to show that you believe is how the, how the kid's song goes. And so we want to be obedient, and this is the first step of that obedience, being identified with Christ. John's was different than that. He baptized by immersion, I believe, that he didn't go stand out in the middle of the river. And, and I see this in some of my Bible dictionaries and stuff. We have John out in the river standing with people to water up to here, and he's got a bowl pouring water on their head. I'm like, why don't you go out in the water to pour a bowl? It's like, no, you go out there because there might be much water. And the early church said it needed to be moving cold water. And so uh, sometimes if we get baptized here in the winter, we comply with the cold water part. But uh, it was to be costly. It was something that you were thinking about, that you were going to do this. Uh, John's out in the water. I believe they were immersed, you know, because it represents death. It represents burial, being placed and being dead and, and in the ground or in the, in the tomb and then raised to newness of life. So I think they were immersed. And we could study the word and it's all, that means that. And so they would do that. They're like, oh, we want to be identified with this movement. But what John would do might be that your start was making your identity, saying you were doing these things. But it couldn't keep you clean. This was like in the priesthood, there were washings that they would do. They had to go to the labor and they would wash. And there's certain washings they would do as part of ceremonial. But they had to go back all the time. See, we are washed once in the blood of the Lamb. We, our sins are forgiven. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. And baptism is the washing of the flesh. And it's a symbolism for us. But here, because Christ hasn't done that work yet, this was them just identifying with it, that, hey, we need to be made clean, but it wasn't going to be permanent. It wasn't like they got baptized again and again and again. It was more of a ritual. It was about repentance. It was about knowing that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. It was about humbleness because you were identifying with a movement and you're doing it publicly. It's publicly proclaiming this as well, and so a lot of those same things translate over, as I just talked about with believer's baptism. 
you're getting wet in public. I mean, it's an embarrassing thing, you know, to do that, to, to then have to change clothes in the cramped quarters and to do all that, come out with wet hair, you know, where usually it's like, I'm usually late because somebody's fixing their hair. I'm not going to say who, you know, to make sure it's right before we come here. You know, so, I, you know, so it's not something you go out with wet hair and do all this. But they have acknowledged that they needed cleansed. They acknowledge that they are ready for Messiah, that they are preparing themselves, because he says, I'm being Isaiah, I want to make the crooked straight, we want to make the high places low, we want to make the rough places smooth, and you're saying, I'm willing, prepare me. And this is what they were doing to John, they're like, oh, I'm ready for Messiah. I want to show that I'm ready for you to, to be cleansed and be ready and prepared so that when he comes, I'm in the right state. I think of that with the rapture. I think of that often, and it helps to motivate me not to be an idiot sometimes, it's like to think, I want to be prepared when Jesus comes. I don't want to be doing something stupid when Jesus comes. You know, so I want to be prepared and ready. I want to be confessed up. I want to be um, all up to date. I want to be right there with him. You know, and I'd love to be with family as, as we fly up together. But you know, I try to keep those short accounts. That's why we have communion every week. So that we keep a short account where we go before the throne of God and we confess our sins and we get right with him each and every week. And you can do that each and every day as you give your accounts up. Or as you sin, Lord, what have I done? Please forgive me. We have that Christian bar of soap where we can go and wash our sins and stay close associated with him without letting big gaps get in between where then he keeps you away and keeps you away from the fellowship and it keeps you away. Don't let sin get in. We want to keep those short accounts. And so we want to make, they're making straight. They're publicly saying and anticipating his arrival. We're saying, we think Messiah is near. Please identify. We want to identify with this movement that we are a group that is anticipating and waiting for Messiah. Like I said, it was aligned with ceremonial washings. But the only ones who would do it in the Jewish community weren't Jewish. This was a ceremony that was generally only done for Gentiles, for proselytes, they called them. When someone would come from a Gentile nation, which was everybody outside of Israel, and then they would want to become Jewish, they would go through this baptism ceremony. We want to be identified with you. Please wash us clean. We'll start out fresh. And we'll now try to obey the laws that we now know. And so they would do this baptism this is what their mind is saying, that, oh, we are preparing for Messiah, that we are repenting. We're like saying, they're being so humble that we're going to be, even Jewish, we're saying we're going to identify with the Gentiles and saying that we're starting fresh, teach us anew, we want to be ready for Messiah when he comes. And so this is a big deal. This is a very big deal to be identified with the Gentile as a Jew. This was a restart. This was uh, crossing a line. You're now saying that you're on Messiah's side, you know, and that you, you're saying, but boy, we're really ready here. And so it is a big, big, big deal, just like baptism is today. So the Jews were shocked by this that was going on. That's why I wanted to know where it was. It was truly a humbling experience. It really meant something when they did it. And John, it says in verse 26, And John answered them saying, I just baptized you with water. And before the end of our passage this morning, he goes, there's going to be one coming who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And it'll be permanent. It'll be different than what I am doing. But he's still preparing the people. Because the Messiah is going to bring something on a whole new level. A forgiveness of sins. And he gives them that warning. The one who's going to do this is standing among you. Verse 26, And John answered them saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom you know not. Can you imagine that? You're just there, you've, there are people around you that have been identified with the Messiah movement that they want to be a part of what John the Baptist is saying and saying, yes, we're prepared and yes, we are ready. And then John says, he's here. He's among you. You don't even know it yet. 
He goes on to say a little bit, because right now he's the teacher. He's the one that the spotlight's on. And then Jewish thinking, you know, well, then that makes him the rabbi. Then the one who would come after him in this line of teaching would probably be his student and under him. And John's like, I want to make sure that none of you think this. So I'm going to use a, a phrase that would be shocking to them that you and I are like, mm, and, and go on. But he says, he is so much more preferred than me, verse 27. He who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. You know, a toss away phrase for you and me. But he's saying, in their culture, the lowest of the low servants was the one who met you at the door and took your shoes off and washed your feet. You know, because they lived in open streets where the main mode of transportation was animal and the Green New Deal, and so they fertilized the trail as they went. You know, and so you would get things on your feet, and it would be the lowest of low jobs to be on these, with these dirty, stinky, nasty feet that have been walking around. But this lowest of the low servants would meet you at the door, unlatch your sandal, Wash your feet, and then you would come into the house to keep the house clean. And John says, you know that lowest servant in your house? I'm lowering that guy compared to the one who's coming. And in their culture, too, the rabbis, one who was teaching, the rabbis would get a cult following. Like they had people that followed them and want to be like them and you know, imitate them and do anything. And it would put power in these men's position, in their hands, and whenever you have power, there's the opportunity for corruption. And these guys would take advantage of it. Oh, get me some water. No, oh, would you run and do this? Would you mind splitting some? Would you pick up my kids from school? Would you do? And they'd run and do it, you know, to all get closer to this teacher and be the favored student. But even in that kind of culture of, of the things that were going on with a rabbi, having their students do all these little menial chores for them, they said it is too low for a rabbi to ask any one of their students to undo their latch on their shoe. They're like, that, that is abuse. You can't do that. This is such a low position. Your students aren't that low. And John said, there's one who's coming after me. I'm not the rabbi. He's the rabbi. And he's so high above me, I'm not even worthy to touch the shoes or the latch on his shoes and unloose it. He's so much different. He's so much above. So this would really get their ears perked up. They're saying, man, what's, this is something to say that. He goes, but I'm, I'm just the voice. He's the deal. I'm the one who's preparing the way. He's, he's the main show. He's the main thing that's going on. He goes, I'm the lowest of the low. But he's the wonderful one. He's the one that we're looking for. Let's read ahead here. Let's go to verse 28. These things were done at Bethabara, where I think where they, they crossed the Jordan, and there should have been stones there uh, that they'd set up as a marker. And this is where John was baptizing, verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. And he saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. That's the phrase we usually remember John the Baptist saying. We'll come back to that. This is he whom he said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And John the Baptist, if you remember, is older, a few months older than Jesus. And he's saying, no, he's existed before me because he just told us, or John just explained to us that he's deity. And he says, And I knew him not, uh, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as which is baptizes with the Holy Ghost. That's what John was saying. He goes, I'm just water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost. 
Verse 34, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. This is John's first witness that he introduces to us as John the Baptist. And John the Baptist tells us Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is Messiah. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that God had told me, you're going to see a spirit descend and land on someone and stay there. And he bears record here. He doesn't give us the account, but he says, I was baptizing him. And the Holy Spirit came down and descended upon him. That's how I know who it is. And so... This isn't all in, in one experience. This is not like they're all standing there and this is one account. There's been some days go by. There's a day where Jesus gets baptized. There's a day where the Pharisees come and maybe Jesus is standing in the crowd before he's baptized. And then there's a day when he's standing there when Jesus walks up and he declares to them, here is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That's where I want to end up thinking about that phrase. Verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. And he saith, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God. We understand that picture. We live in the here and now, and we've had the benefit of time, and we've had the benefit of other teachers who have gone before us. But boy, the Lamb of God. Such a lowly animal. People use it. I hear that phrase used a lot now. Sheep. Sheep following somebody. Oh, don't be sheeple. You know, and all these things. Jesus calls us to be his sheeple. I guess we're going to use that word. We're to follow him. He's the master. We're to listen to his voice and we're to follow. We're to imitate him. We're to be like him. But the stuff that they would have understood, sheep, shepherding, they understood the lamb. Families had to have one prepared and ready to be their sacrifice. They had one that they had to keep in their house and that would become like a close pet to them that would then go down and die in their place, that they would symbolically transfer their sin over and it would be killed in their place. But here, it would be temporary with those. The lamb would then have to do it again next year. And the next year that time would come around again and they'd have to do it again and again and again. It might have covered sin, but it didn't remove it. And John says this one's different. This lamb will take away sin. And not just your sin, but the sin of the world. All those other lambs were to make your eyes open. They've all pointed to him throughout all eternity getting the people prepared and ready for the day when Messiah would show up. The sacrifice in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't tell us what it was. But I bet if I'd asked, oh, what'd they kill to make Adam and Eve clothes? We'd probably all say, educated guess would be a lamb. <laughs> right? Because this is the typology, this is where it goes. I think Answers in Genesis does a good job when you're going through the museum. There's a skinned animal laying there, and Adam and Eve have a horrified look on their face that something had to die for them so that they could then wear its flesh. I mean... Something that you and I are used to, but for this happening for the first time, and you look at that animal and you're like, is it a sheep? They made it pretty nondescript where you can't really guess because we don't know, uh, but we suspect. But we do know this, it was a sacrifice. So something was sacrificed that died in their place to cover them until the Lamb of God came. It was a picture, it was a type. Abraham was told when he took Isaac up, God would provide himself a lamb. Is this a bad grammar? Or does he literally mean that God himself would be the lamb who would be sacrificed in their place instead of Isaac? No, it was on purpose. The Holy Spirit controls what words are even spoken. God would provide himself a lamb, and here he is, the word made flesh, to provide himself as a lamb, sacrificed for us. In the Passover, they would take a lamb, and they would sacrifice it, and then they were to take its blood and apply it to the doorpost. 
to show that they had complied, that they were obedient, that they were inside, dressed and ready to go. They were eating the sacrifice, but we want to know that something has died in our place, and they've applied the doorpost, you know, the blood to the doorpost. So then when the death angel comes, it can look at the blood on the doorpost, and it would pass over, and it would not go inside and kill them. You ever thought about that night? That would be no Christmas anticipation night. We're like, ooh, what's it going to be like in the morning? It's going to be like, did we apply it right? I always took it to heart because I'm the firstborn. They all look at, is Brian going to die? What would that have been like? You know, to, that I'd have to be the firstborn son and to, to have that and applied to blood, that I'd be the one that would die. You know, it'd be, it would come down upon me. But the blood was applied. And the death angel passed over. This lamb of God who's coming, if you applied the blood to the doorpost of your heart, the death angel passes over you. You pass from death into life. The sin offerings that they did each and every year that the priests were down there making sacrifices for, laying their hands on foreheads of the family members, transferring their sin, the priest taking it, slitting its throat, performing the sacrifices that was supposed to be made, cutting and dismembering the animal, picking the entrails in certain places, pouring the blood other places, giving the meat back in some, keeping a portion over here, day after day, all the time, having to make some kind of sin offering, all pointing the picture to the Lamb of God who was going to come and take away the sin of the world. The sin that was removed and placed on one and carried outside. Some that was made for this sacrifice, some that were made for that sacrifice. The land that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53, all a type and a foreshadowing. This was him. The one who bears our grief is standing in their midst. The one who knows our sorrows is the Jesus Christ, the one who was chosen from among them. The one who was stricken and afflicted. Literally, this man would be beaten. He would be afflicted his whole life with just the hatred and the things that had been upon him. But he literally be stricken and afflicted. For who? For his iniquities, Isaiah 53 says? No, for our iniquities. Not because of anything he deserves, but because of what we deserve. We're placed upon him as that sacrificial lamb. Our chastisement was upon him. The chastisement, the punishment that should have been upon you and I throughout all eternity because we sinned against a holy God who can never be satisfied. Satisfied in Jesus Christ, the chastisement, the wrath that should have been upon us was placed upon him that pleased the Lord. By his stripes are we healed, Isaiah 53 says. All those other lambs, all that talking from the garden up until that day on Calvary were all rehearsals, were all types, were all shadows, were all practices pointing towards the one who would come and here before his ministry even officially begins and we're thinking here he's already been through the wilderness he's already had uh, those 40 days and nights without food where he's wrestled with the devil now he's coming to be proclaimed publicly and john says i see your end you're going to be the lamb of god that's sacrificed for the sins of the world you're the one who's going to die in our place he's already pointing towards that even his birth placed in that manger where those little sheep were to be the ones that would be sacrificed, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lest they be tainted with the soil and dirt of the world. Everything in his life had pointed towards his death. The lamb that was sacrificed before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us, is Jesus Christ. And here he comes. And John has introduced him. He's a good first witness to call. Here's the one. God had told me to go and cry in the wilderness and prepare the way. Here's the one that the dove had landed on. This is the one that the voice of God said, and I heard it cry out. This is the one who shoe latch, and I'm not worthy to unlatch. This is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God, is how he concludes his point. His testimony rests, and he sets down. And we have the rest of the Gospel of John as he introduces other witnesses to us, another six.
Is he your Lamb of God? Is he the one that you're identified with through your baptism? That you're saying, yes, the one who died for my sin, who was buried and rose again the third day, I've been identified with him. Is he the one that we want to go forth and testify for and testify of? I once was lost, but now I am found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was the old me, but now I'm the new me. Things that I loved, I now despised. Things that I couldn't see how people could do, I now desire to do. I want to read the Bible. I want to be with his people. I want to give up a Sunday and be in his church. I want to put myself on the public square as a voice crying in the wilderness and not just blend into the crowd and not be seen, but to speak up and to give a testimony, to witness, to let people know I'm praying for them, to give them that pie at Thanksgiving that has the gospel message on it, to give them other notes of encouragement along the way to point them towards Christ. Lord, I want to be that. I pray He is your Savior. I pray you do identify with Him. And if you have it, today would be a good time to do that. To say, I want Him as my Savior. I need to be on His team. Today would be the day. Now's the time. No time like the present. I'd say get those things secure. And if He is yours, let's have confidence in Him. This is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, the one that Jesus says out of all the Old Testament prophets, there was none like unto John. And he testified of him. We could take the voice of this preacher and believe it. And I think you could look at the testimonies in this room of those that were lost, those that were sinners, that have been changed into saints, and say that God is still alive and well. God is saving souls. God is transforming lives today. Salvation is still free and still available. Take advantage of it while the opportunity is still open. While this time has not yet passed. Because the time is drawing shorter. And as near as very soon, and you better be believing, I was thinking of Rich Mullins, (laughs) that our God is an awesome God and he will save you in that way. I'm glad we have a God who loves us and didn't leave us in our sin, but sent his son down to be a sacrifice for us.